beginning in the 1920s, right, when there's this study that's been uh, heavily cited by two educational psychologists who found that children's moral behavior was not consistent across different situations. So if you cheated on a test, that was not a strong predictor of whether you would then behave in a fair or unfair manner in the playground. Welcome to the Unwisdom Podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Grossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for the society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, I would like to thank our listeners. You've been with us for a number of episodes, and now uh, we will talk about the Foolish Sage. Today we have uh, another guest, Aranda Jayavikrame from the Wake Forest University. Aranda, how are you? I am doing really well. Uh, I'm enjoying a warm... I guess it's a spring morning. I actually don't remember whether it's spring or summer, uh, but it's a lovely warm morning here in Winston-Salem, and I'm really happy to be here on the podcast. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Aranda, we want your expertise on a topic that is probably at least as close to my heart as this to yours, and it is the forever going on debate about nature versus nurture between the person and the situation. And uh, I think uh, you can probably uh, represent the more balanced perspective, I, I probably will be more biased uh, given <laughs> uh, my intellectual heritage. Right. Uh, but before we go into that, Charles, uh, why don't you start and uh, tell us a little bit about why we decided to focus on this topic, the foolish sage, in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I when I talk to people about wisdom, they tend to think of, you know, the first thing they'll think of is wise people. So they'll think of Gandhi or they'll think of Mother Teresa or people often say that, you know, their father's wise. I don't know, that comes up quite a lot. I think my dad was pretty wise, actually. But people often think of wisdom as being something that's in someone. That person is wise. And I suppose that makes sense. We kind of think of people as intelligent or caring. We think of them as having these kind of traits. But it's interesting when you look at the wisdom research that it's not quite necessarily as straightforward as that. And the way people behave seems to vary quite a lot but the tradition seems to have been that we we think people have quite a stable personality so there's this long ongoing debate about is any trait not not necessarily just wisdom but is it something that is inside the person or is it something that changes depending on the situation and it has huge ramifications for the field and people when I, again, talk to them about wisdom, they often say, how do you measure wisdom? You know, and they often look at me with a great deal of incredulity when I say that that, that can be done. But it's critical to this point about is wisdom something that's consistent or not? Because if wisdom varies a lot and you measure someone's wisdom, you know, it, you might get one kind of reading that would be very different at a different point. So this whole is wisdom inside the person or is it something that depends on the situation is absolutely fundamental to the field. So it kind of is one of the first things you need to talk about when you're trying to argue a case for a science of wisdom is where is actually the wisdom based and therefore the implications for measuring it. That was kind right. of the context. But I had a question for you um, and I'll put this to I'll put this to Igor. Huh, all right. Eagle, can you think of a situation when you have acted out of character? So defined character in the first place. <laughs> well, it's a phrase, isn't it? We use a lot acting out of yeah, character. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. It's true. So, I mean, and I, mean, I probably act out of character half the time. I'm incredibly uh, spontaneous in this regard. So it's, uh, the, the notion of consistency in my character. Are you, are you saying I was, I was loading the question for. quite heavily by saying you acted yeah. out of character? Yeah, a little bit. That's, or, okay, it's maybe an unfair question. But we, we do, I guess what I'm getting at is we find it a little bit odd or we find it unnerving if people act in unpredictable ways, wouldn't you say? That's true. Uh, that's true. I mean, we we, we don't like uh, uh, unpredictability. That's that's just like a general tendency. There's an aversion. Like we have to fight against dealing with uncertainty. But I think like being out of character, that this could have, of course, uh, many different meanings. So it can be uh, not being up to some kind of standards. Uh, or it can be uh, just uh, not acting in accordance to the expectation that you have about this uh, this particular individual. And, you know, so those are two slightly different things. I mean, but I, I I really meant it when I said that the notion of character is a very difficult uh, one because even mm -hmm. in psychology, 
And this is something that Aranda can probably tell us something in a second. The notion of character has been debated for quite a long time, in fact, abandoned for the good part of the 20th century. So is, that, is that right? Like, how would you describe the notion of character, Aranda? I think this is a very good discussion because I think it leads into some of the core issues surrounding the stability and consistency, right, of of character. So I will say that I think many people's understanding of character uh, stems from how Aristotle spoke about virtue and character. So for Aristotle, character and the virtues of character were very consistent, stable traits, Right. So in the tradition of Aristotelian virtue ethics, which, you know, in academic philosophy is one of the dominant areas of ethics. Resurgent, resurgent. Exactly. It it is very resurgent. Yeah. So the idea is that, you know, the trait, if you have these traits of these virtues, that means that you're going to act in a very predictable manner in appropriate contexts or in, you know, appropriate situations in the in a moral way. Right. So and I think for most people, when they think about character and when they think about traits, uh, for the most part, they have this idea of someone acting the same way consistently. And I happen to think that it's an, you know, it's not a correct way of thinking about traits. In fact, if that if that was how personality psychology had been characterized when I first was a PhD student and then a postdoc in this field, I probably would not have become a personality psychologist. But I think part of the issue around uh, this question of whether character should be stable or not stable, whether traits are fixed or flexible, comes from this belief that if you have a trait, then that trait has to has to be fixed, right? And then having a trait yeah. means that you're you're behaving in the same manner over and over again. Yeah. So, like, this is really interesting. I mean, it brings in, uh, of course, several things. Uh, one of which uh, is very topical: the the notion of to what extent are we influenced by the situation, the power of the situation versus something that is already in us and something according to which we act, well, according to some moral standards or not. Uh, For instance, uh, this uh, week, a new article emerged discussing the Stanford Prison Experiment. I don't know if you guys have seen that, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, uh, basically points out to something that some psychologists, including myself, uh, knew uh, mm-hmm. And that is that uh, Phil Zimbardo has been embellishing the story every five years, so every decade, about the uh, uh, Stanford Prison Experiment. And it turns out, uh, the, well, the narrative of the uh, Stanford Prison Experiment is that if you assign people to being guards and uh, being prisoners just randomly, then after a few days, uh, the guards will become this sadists who yeah. torture people. And uh, the prisoners will become this kind of helpless victims who can't help but cry and like break down and so on and so forth because they're completely dehumanized. It turns out, uh, according to research uh, that uh, some uh, investigative research that some journalists did, that what really happened was that uh, Zibardo instructed somebody who was in prison earlier to provide some guidance how to act as. Uh, guards and all those uh, sadistic tendencies that were shown and among the guards, people who were randomly assigned to be guards, well, they were instructed to act according to those principles. So, of course, other people broke down, but the point is that it's not as much just the power of the situation per se, but that there was also quite a bit of cultivating a certain culture that was created for those guards before they engaged with prisoners or the or students who acted like prisoners. So, um, um, so, again, like casting sort of a little bit of a doubt, to what extent is it just the situation, to what extent is it just some kind of a disposition? But, of course, the other example, the classic example, is the, the actor-observer bias example, mm-hmm. and that's the one that got personality psychology to some extent, well, at least some people claimed it did, in trouble, where if you are in the restaurant, for instance, and you see a waitress not being friendly. If you are, uh, you, you can you can make an assumption that this is because the waitress is just an unfriendly person. Her character, she's just very unfriendly as a, as a person. But it, what could have really happened, of course, is that uh, maybe 
uh, her boss just shouted at her, or uh, she had a very bad morning, uh, was stuck in a traffic jam before getting to work, her child is sick, and so on and so forth, or the previous customer didn't pay her at all, and so on. Uh, so the, maybe there is a situational explanation. So we often forget about the situational explanation, and it varies. Like if you are actually that waitress, the situational explanation is probably the first one that comes to your mind. Uh, whereas as, a, as a somebody who is observing, you are more likely to make inferences about, or readily make inferences about uh, the waitress' personality, about her dispositions. So that's what the actors are. And that, that leads uh, to a bias, of course, in interpreting somebody's behavior, especially could, if you look at it from a side. Mm-hmm. Could Igor, I was just thinking about that. I mean, because that's obviously incredibly relevant to this because we're talking about, you know, is behavior based on character or or is behavior based on the situation and here's a sort of a strange scenario where it it depends you know if it's you it's the situation and if it's someone else it's character so it's a a really juicy example but just when you're explaining it i wondered whether it's just a kind of a sort of laziness or like a cognitive laziness you know if you see someone behaving badly it's just easier on the brain to assume that's because they're a lazy or sorry they're a bad person um rather than making the effort to think about possible situational contingencies that might have that effect you know so it's just a, could it just be a sort of cognitive laziness just what why am i going to spend my time thinking about all the possible different influences absolutely i mean we are cognitive misers so we try to find the simplest <laughs> yeah. way to uh figure out uh, the world around us but of course i can turn it around and then say well, you know, uh, why, why is uh, the uh, inference of somebody's personality, their disposition, the easiest one, the lazy one? Why is it not uh, some uh, uh, situational explaining away of somebody's behavior? So it turns out like it's, it really depends on what's on your mind. Mm. You know, in some cultures where people are more likely to characterize everybody in terms of this is this person, this person is agreeable, this person is extrovert, this person is friendly, this person is, is an asshole, uh, uh, then you would be more likely to uh, make this kind of dispositional inferences. In other cultures where you are more likely to focus on the situation and say, well, it's not really about who this person is, it's just because this happened or that happened. So you focus really on the situation. People are more readily thinking about the situation. So, I mean, but I That's think your explanation makes sense. Mm. And uh, to be frank, uh, in, in the consistency, like really uh, uh, like putting the amount of time given to people to, for instance, reflect on the situation and checking it in different contexts, this has not been tested yet, not uh, as much as one would want to really put a, uh, put a more parsimonious explanation out there. Yeah. I mean, I, before before we kind of like get into the, the history of this, because it's a, a long and colourful history, Aranda, I was interested in your thoughts about just the kind of emotional appeal of the two different positions. If you just have the idea on the one hand that people around us have stable characters. And then on the other hand, you have this idea that people's behavior is a product of their situation. What, what do you think about the sort of the ways that we as humans might be drawn to these different stories or different ways of explaining things? And, and do you think that might be a factor? No, I think that's a good question. I do think that part of the reason why the appeal of ascribing behavior to someone's character is so strong, at least in the West, and I I take Ego's point seriously, and I agree with him that these things do vary by culture, is that, you know, we we do want to ascribe responsibility to people, right, for uh, their behaviors and their actions. So, you know, part of the reason why I think, you know, making the case that there's, there's circumstantial reasons why someone acted in a particular way in a court case, for example, right? Those types of arguments are hard, right? Because people want to make the case, well, it's, there's something fundamental about this person, right? That's different from everyone else that caused him or her to do whatever act or crime that person did, right? So I think we do have this sort of motivation, right, to hold people responsible for their actions. Now, it is interesting. So going back to Bill Zimbardo's prison experiment, there have been always been concerns about that study. I remember back when I was in grad school in Penn, people were talking about the fact that we shouldn't read in too much into it because it turns out he had done the experiment multiple times and he only reported the one that came right. out the way he wanted. But he made a lot out of that experiment. And 
So, for example, in um, doing the Abu Ghraib scandal, right? So, when the, these reports that prisoners at the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq were being tortured by um, and humiliated by uh, American soldiers, that was around the time when Phil Zimbardo's book, The Lucifer Effect, had come out. So, he was on uh, in the media a lot talking about how, well, it's not really bad, bad apples. Bad apples is a, like a bias that we have is actually a bad barrel. Right. So I, I think that depending on the context, they can be motivated to really push on either like uh, situational or characterological explanations for people's behavior. And I think part of that is motivational. Part of it is because it does to some extent fit with the view of the world that we want to we want to promote. Right. I mean, it's also interesting because uh, it suggests that sometimes when it is in somebody's political interest, mm-hmm. uh, either for social activists who uh, may be uh, for or against, let's say, the prison system or reform in the prison system, uh, they may use this argument to say, well, actually, it doesn't really matter because it's all about the situation. It doesn't matter uh, what uh, you cultivate, what your curriculum could be. Uh, you just uh, need to make sure that the situation is right. Uh, which is uh, a different take on an issue, of course, that uh, this classic Aristotelian and also, in many ways, uh, in Western cultures, a Christian perspective on right. the human nature. Like, in many ways, those are intertwined, I mean, Aristotle and uh, Christian perspectives. And I think, I think it, like, it also goes back also to, if you, if you think about it very carefully, this type of ideas, nature versus nurture, certainly in psychology, can be traced back all the way to behaviorism, if not earlier. And so, well, right. but, yeah, I have this idea that everything is just about human behavior and the notion of the situation. It doesn't matter how the person reflects on it. It doesn't matter uh, what kind of uh, dispositions uh, they may have. It's just about uh, what the situational forces are. And there's a very strong Skinnerian argument uh, that is present in... Uh, in many of these uh, classic studies, I think, inadvertently, because I don't think they ever intended to present themselves as such. No, I agree with you. And I think, at least intuitively, one one reason why I think that argument is so problematic, right? you know, and I understand why people who are arguing for prison reform and making these arguments saying that, well, you just have to change, change people's contexts and then people will be, will be better, right? I get that. But it, it's also true that if the change in the context doesn't impact the individual or doesn't impact the person in a, in a way that that change that the intervention or the change in the situation is supposed to foster sticks with the person. Yeah. Then once that person is in a different situation, <laughs> that person is just going to react to whatever is bad about the situation, right? Whereas if so, you feel you could develop their character, then it would travel with them into a different situation. That's the appeal there. But it seems like you have to have some belief in character if you want to believe that any intervention could work. Good. It has to impact something stable about the person. But that's that's interesting about character. Like, I think one of the reasons people find it, I don't know, off-putting to think about characters because they then, th- and it doesn't fit with the sort of modern view of ourselves that we can become whatever we want to be. You know, character seems to have this air that, you know, this is who you are and you're sort of uh, trapped in that, which doesn't seem to resonate with how we like to think of ourselves in this kind of, uh, modern world where you know if you can be anything you want to be you know i think some people prefer this idea that your char- one's behavior can change more than the character kind of idea would suggest no i, I no I, I take that point and i think this comes back i you know uh to this idea like the this lay idea of character and this lay idea of traits that we have right which is it is something fixed yeah uh, people differ from each other on it and people are pretty stable across the lifespan in their levels of personality. And, you know, this is something I know we're going to get into. But I will say, you know, part of the reason why people do have this belief, and I will say part of the reason why some psychologists, right, who do take a strong, a strong trait perspective, also sort of subscribe to this view of traits as being somewhat fixed. The reason why they believe this is that it is true, right, that to the extent to which you have high or low levels of a given trait, that has pretty substantial implications for life outcomes, right? So for example, you know, there's this well-known finding that 
people high on conscientiousness, like the, the big five personality trait of conscientiousness, they live, you know, five to six years longer than people low in conscientiousness. People who are high on the big five trait of extroversion tend to be happier. They tend to have better quality relationships. People who are agreeable tend to do well at work. So let me quickly interject here. Aranda, I want to clarify to our listeners of what the big five refers to, uh, because I don't think we clarified it yet. Uh, big five refers to five characteristics, dimensions, uh, that uh, go from one pole to another, uh, such as openness to experience, be inventive uh, on the one hand versus consistent and conscious on the other, conscientious, uh, be efficient versus easygoing, extroverted, outgoing versus reserved, agreeable, friendly versus detached, challenging, and emotional stability or neuroticism. Uh, emotional stability is one pole, neuroticism is another pole, so be nervous and neurotic on the one end and secure and confident on the other end. And um, these uh, five uh, characteristics have been uh, studied for a long period of time and are considered very stable by some personality researchers. So, Randa, I want us uh, to get a better picture. Why is it the case that they are considered stable? Can you clarify it for us, please? So, the fact that being high or low on these traits has implications, that gives sort of credence to the view that, okay, there has to be something fixed and stable about this trait that's leading to these outcomes, right? So part of the argument for these, you know, these broad traits being somewhat stable, right, comes from this empirical evidence that being high and low on certain traits does give you a better quality of life. But I mean, if I were to counter that, Rand, I mm -hmm. could say, but what if, for instance, uh, what is really driving uh, those findings is not the notion of stability in the person, but the notion of stability in type of environments that those persons are either creating for themselves or just happen to live in. So maybe, you know, neurotic people are, well, it's, it goes without saying, actually, that neurotic people would be creating different environments for themselves than extroverted right. people. Like one would be probably more surrounded by people uh, to have a social network of, uh, that they can rely on. The other one would be more withdrawn and not have a social network. I mean, there are other social factors or economic factors even that one could possibly bring in. Uh, that sort of like has then uh, an intricate relationship between possible individual differences and situational constraints, uh, the situational factors that are going along with these individual differences. And together, then they produce these outcomes. So it would be very hard to disentangle, of course, which of them started, but also very hard to say, well, it's just because of the consistency in the personality rather than consistency, the interaction, how personality and the situation uh, relate to each other. So I agree with you, Igor. And as I said at the beginning, that if that was the default view of personality, that personality is good because there's something about the stability of these traits to lead, that lead to these outcomes. You know, that's a pretty like, deterministic way of thinking about traits. So I'm not sure, yeah. being a personality psychologist, right? If it's, you know, if it was the case that you're fated to be extroverted, so good for you, or you, you turned, you, you're actually introverted, you know, sucks to be you, you're going to be sad and lonely, right? I want to get to the bottom of what, what a trait is. And I think most people listening to this, and I, th I think you've got at this around it before, would have this idea that a trait is something that's stable. So what do we mean when we talk about traits, if they can also change? So that's an excellent question. So I'm going to try very quickly to give sort of a history of how traits have been described in personality, right? So I mentioned that, you know, we have a lot of we have a lot of substantive, replicated research done across multiple labs showing that traits are important, right? If you're high on certain traits, they predict important life outcomes. And for some people, this is evidence, as I mentioned earlier, that there's something like there's some core to the trait that lives within you, right? That's leading to all these outcomes. Now, beginning in the 1920s, right, when there's this study that's been uh, heavily cited by two educational psychologists who found that people, that, that children's moral behavior was not consistent across different situations. So uh, if you cheated on a test, that was not a strong predictor of whether you would then behave in a fair, unfair manner in the playground. So beginning around that time, there started to be doubts about whether, well, we had this idea of traits as being this fixed, these fixed entities that are within us, maybe that's not true because people are not behaving in ways consistent with this idea of traits as a fixed entity within the self. 
Now, this led to a really important book, at least in personality psychology, that came out in 1968 called Personality and Assessment. It was written by Walter Michel, who was a psychologist at, um, he, he was at Columbia. I don't know whether he was at Columbia in 1968. And what's interesting about I think about he was that, at Stanford back then. Right, he might have been at Stanford. And what's interesting is that that wasn't his main area of research. I think he had written Personality and Assessment as like a major area paper when he was in grad school, and he was persuaded to publish it. At least that's the story I've heard him say. In that, he made the argument that because people's behaviors were not consistent from situation to situation, our like, understanding of traits of these SD's fixed entities reflected a bias, right? Or reflected in, in an, an inaccurate belief about the consistency of personality. And then he later developed a much more nuanced, context-dependent view of personality, where he tried to explain people's behavior in terms of social cognitive processes. So to put it in, in layman terms, sort of, if I'm in a particular situation, this is how I should react, or this is how I will react. So in psychology, we call, in personality, we call this if-then signatures. We also, you know, the term situational contingencies, which Charles used earlier, that also is a pretty good uh, a synonym for that. So this was the second way or the alternative approach to personality, right? So if you took seriously this idea that, well, you know, I believe that people have different personalities, but it turns out that people vary from moment to moment or from situation to situation. And that is inconsistent with the trait view, which shows that, which is supposed to show that we are consistent, not across, not only across time, but across situations. Then it seemed like the social cognitive model was the way to go. So those are two, like, uh, competing views on personality that existed uh, until maybe 15 years ago. Now, around 15 years ago, there were a number of researchers. One of them was my senior colleague, Will Fleeson, who I've collaborated on some of this stuff with, who started arguing that it's possible to think about personality traits in a way that both reconciles the idea that we do have long-term stability in our behavior, but also in the short term, in part, and I think this is important, in part because we have different social goals that we want to enact or achieve in our lives, our personality also would vary from situation to situation. So, Aranda, how does this apply to big personality traits that people might be familiar with, like the big five, like agreeableness, extroversion, that sort of thing? What's really impressive about the Big Five, I think, at least, you know, the work that's been done in, in, in the West, is that it's the result of careful, replicated research, and it seems to do a good job of summarizing social behavior, right? So you have that on the one hand, but you also have the evidence of behavior inconsistency, right? That people vary in the behavior from moment to moment, right? In a way that seems inconsistent with the Big Five approach. So what whole trade theory does is that argues that the big five can be explained through social cognitive processes, right? So that once you think about the big five as density distributions of states, right? So if you, so this requires a little bit of unpacking. So in whole trait theory, there's a distinction made between the descriptive part of the trait and the explanatory side of the trait. The descriptive part is people's behavior across time, right? So when we talk about traits in general, right, we and I think philosophers especially do this. They want to refer to something that's deep in you, right? But what we're actually doing is simply describing people's behavior, right? So when we say mm-hmm. someone is extroverted, we're not really saying that that person uh, has some sort of like some sort of like deep core within him or her that's leading to the extroversion. What we're really saying is that that person is acting in, a, in, in an extroverted way. Right. So, so it's the describing descript- their behavior rather than some sort of inbuilt trait. Exactly. Right. Okay. So from that perspective, most of the measurement in personality has focused on the, on the descriptive part. Right. Either you're asking people, how extroverted are you in general? Or if you take the whole trait theory approach, how extroverted are you now? Right. And then you, then you look at for patterns of behavior based on the distribution of states. Now, once you conceptualize of the big five in those terms, in terms of these distributions, then you have to think about the explanation for traits that also explains why people vary on that trait so much from moment to moment. And it turns out that social cognitive mechanisms or social cognitive processes are the best way to explain Mm -hmm. that, right? That people vary from context to context because each context places different amounts of people. It it affords the uh, achievement of a certain goal that a person has. 
So to the extent to which we vary in our behavior from moment to moment, that variation, that variability can be explained by social economy processes. Mm-hmm. But the, to the extent to which people differ from each other, to the extent to which Charles is more extroverted than, uh, than Aranda, that can be explained by differences in the links between different social economy processes. So to the extent to which we each have different dis- distributions of behavior, so let's say like the fact that Charles has a, a distribution of extroversion that skews more to the right than mine, that can be explained by differences in the social cognitive processes underlying that distribution. We as psychologists don't have some kind of an instrument that would be right away capturing a deep uh, underlying trait, if there is such a thing, that we exactly. uh, have to use some other methods. And w- the only the best method we have is the method of observing behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe some underlying physiological processes, be it in the brain or in the body. But uh, those are also, in my opinion, just instantiations of certain behavioral process. And I will say, I think this this tension, this like trying to move people away from this idea of the trait is something fixed, that's something that is not only true among philosophers, but some psychologists, right, also are resistant to this idea of not thinking about the trait in terms of this fixed entity, right? Because if you think yeah. about the implications of the whole trait theory, right, you have the distribution of behavior and it's undergirded by the social cognitive processes. So once you accept the tenets of whole trait theory, it becomes really hard to point at something and call it the trait, right? There's, no, there's nothing yeah. deep within you that's the trait. If you, all you have are the distribution of these behaviors. So you have a, you have a behavior profile, essentially, rather than a trait. That's, that's what you yeah. have. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's exactly the key issue. I mean, my, my colleagues don't like me for, uh, for that reason, because <laughs> I'm, I'm incredibly allergic to somebody... Uh, calling, let's say, agreeableness a trait if they measured it only once with it, or self-esteem a trait, like a trait self-esteem. They call it like highs versus lows. And there are so many versions of essentialism that are just in that one sentence, mm. like highs versus lows. Like highs versus lows, like, but you just measured it once. But self-esteem is really stable. Like, in what context? You use this old questionnaire from 1950s. How do you know? <laughs> and, and there are so many problems with that. If you were going to, not only is a single shot assessment not going to be valid if, if it varies, but also you would need to assess them in lots and lots of different contexts. You'd need to like follow them around. And just after they crash their car, you would need to sort of assess them then. And then you'd need to assess them just after they've broken up with their girlfriend. Then you need to assess them just after they've been fired or just when their teams won the match. So you would need to assess them in multiple different contexts. That's right. That's right. And that's uh, people are not very willing to do that because uh, that is much more costly. You know, they want to, yeah, it's expensive. They want to publish papers, mm-hmm. and you know, and uh, there is this push to uh, produce and produce and produce, and sometimes at the expense of doing good science. So quite often, people start generalizing instead of like saying, "Well, actually, well, we measured something that could be a contributing factor to uh, trait agreeableness." But that doesn't sound as nice as if you say we measured trait agreeableness. Yeah. Do you think people intellectually doing the research they don't see those problems or they or they see them but they choose to turn a blind eye to them well you know like we, at the beginning we talked about that people are cognitive misers mm. and that we we sometimes need to be but when psychologists try to build some kind of a theoretical framework they try to simplify it and so if you add this complexity that actually you're not measuring uh, a trait but you may be measuring just a certain instance in a particular situation that may in fact be more about the situation than about the particular underlying uh, disposition. That makes it very hard. I mean, it requires also many more cognitive resources. And uh, frankly, it also requires different uh, training, methodological training that a lot of psychologists don't have, at least in North America, uh, where you need to think about networks uh, of process, where you need to think about like longitudinal models, where you need to think about, uh, you know, use multi-level models uh, to analyze your data. And all these more advanced techniques require additional training. And a lot of uh, certainly older generations don't have them. 
And I think, so just to follow up on Ego's point, I, I want to say one other explanation for why I think there's resistance. If you think about the classical distinction between a social psychologist and a personality psychologist, right? Social psychologists are interested in explaining, and this is, I'm talking really broad terms now, right? Social factors that predict behavior or social factors that, social factors that lead to variability in behavior. And personality psychologists are interested in sources of stability within the person. Right. And I think there are some personality psychologists who say that once you're interested in studying variability, right, you're not really a personality psychologist. What you, what you should be interested in, the personality psychologist, is what is that core within you? What is that core factor that explains why some people have higher trait levels of X while other people have low trait levels of X? Right. And a lot of mainstream personality psychologists will make that argument. And they'll, it is not, they say, because it may not necessarily because, be because the cognitive misers is because they have a very different understanding of what it means to study personality. You've um, done some diary studies and it seems to throw up some really relevant results about the variability of wisdom. So I, can you sort of give us some highlights of that? Uh, yeah, so the, like other virtues or dispositional processes that seem to be claimed to be dispositional or whatever, uh, intellectual virtues that are associated with wisdom or practical wisdom in Aristotelian sense. For instance, you know, be open-minded, recognize limits of your knowledge, uh, take different perspectives into account, like be empathetic in this cognitive way in some ways. They vary. If you ask people every day to report on the most challenging event of the day and uh, then reflect on the uh, how they reason about it, there's quite a bit of variability from one situation to the next, from one day to the next. And in fact, this variability would be greater than the average variability between people. So like if you average those responses, that, that variability would be lower than how much the same person varied from one situation across, let's say, a week to another situation. And so those are the findings for uh, wisdom-related intellectual virtues, if you want, and what is also remarkable that's consistent with the whole trade theory is that uh, this uh, variability is uh, systematic. Uh, turns out that in situations in which you're surrounded by people that matter in your life, your co-workers, particularly family and friends, you're more likely to be open-minded and take different perspectives than in situations in which you're well, surrounded by strangers somewhere on the subway and something bad happened and, uh, uh, or you're just walking down the street and uh, got into some argument with a stranger. Uh, so there you're less likely to engage in wisdom-related processes this reasoning process than in situations in which you are motivated uh, to engage in them. I was, uh, whenever I tell people about that, last point you know chatting to friends and i said you know that you kind of tend to you know think more wisely when there are other people around than on your own people always say to me surely it depends mm. on who those other people are like mm -hmm. um, you know uh if because you know people fall in with bad crowds or good crowds or you know you could be with your frat buddies or you could be with you know your parents so yeah it, that would be a factor wouldn't it no for sure i mean i mean this is just on average right yeah. like when people report on the on the events and they self-select what kind of events they report they probably would not report yeah. on events which they were presenting themselves in a horrible light by having an argument with the close others i mean that can of course also happen uh, i agree there is quite a bit of variability but on average I, I my interpretation is really if there is a motivation to engage with a certain individual so there is certainly greater motivation to take different perspectives. Now, whether you would be willing to compromise afterwards or not, that's a different story. But you would be more willing to consider the perspectives of uh, people who you trust or people whom you can rely on or your family, even if you uh, have a fallout with them, yeah, than uh, with some strangers. Yeah, I, I think, Aranda, I think you sent through a paper which was about intellectual humility and, and the different kind of situational factors. Oh, yes. That yeah, yeah, and that's sort of because there was something in there about if the other person that you're engaging with is an authority figure or if they're, you consider them a moral figure, that will have a, uh, an impact on your intellectual humility. Does that, is that right? No, that's correct. So, yeah, so this is a series of studies that my grad student ran maybe a 
year and a half ago. And what we found, so we developed a, a, a measure of state intellectual humility. And what we found is that if you perceive someone as being someone of good character, of, as you mentioned, a moral authority figure, that was associated with higher levels of manifestations of intellectual humility. But also, if you perceived the interaction you had with someone as a disagreement, that was associated with lower levels of intellectual humility. I will say the second finding is not surprising at all, that it, it would occur, if you see a, as a discussion as a disagreement, it's harder for you to exhibit high levels of intellectual humility. Yeah, it's also right, unfortunate, right, because it seems that being in a disagreement is exactly the context in which you'd want to have the tool of intellectual humility. Yeah. Uh, but it seems to be, and again, on average, right? On average, it's the case that, that it makes it harder for people to manifest intellectual humility in those contexts. Igor, you, you told me maybe last year when we were meeting up about that there was a, I was just thinking about different, you know, external factors that would influence um, right. your wise reasoning. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned some studies that I don't know if you'd published them yet or it was just coming out, but it was something about how the gender of the person you were in conversation with could have an impact as well. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. No, this is published. This is a journal of personality and social psychology. It's like the as part of a large scale validation of a new state level mm-hmm. measure. Like we talked about the states and traits, and like that we need a state level measure of wisdom in order to capture multiple states. And so we validated the measure. And as part of this validation, we looked at gender that and how it interacted with the gender of the other person. And so there was an interesting pattern that if you are in a situation in which you talk to somebody of the opposite gender, particularly if you're male, you're more likely to engage in wise reasoning. And the reverse was also true, uh, though not as systematic across cultures. We looked in the UK and we looked in North America, Canada and the United States. And the reverse, I think, was true in the UK, but not as much in North America, if I remember correctly. But bottom line is that there is this cross-gender interaction that if you talk to somebody of opposite gender, you're more likely to engage in this wise reasoning instead of like reconsider different perspectives, be intellectually humble, not recognize various ways how situation may unfold, at least simulate them in your head. So that's uh, that's the finding that we had there. I think this came up earlier about it's, it's hard to know... Um the, the motivation if you're, you're just looking at behavior aren't you so mm-hmm. you don't you don't know the motivations for that behavior i mean how would you is there any way of ever getting at the motivation i mean isn't the behavior all you can really measure well you can also ask about yeah. people's motivations so that's not uh, or you can uh, there are actually measures uh, that are not necessarily relying on questionnaires where you can also try to get at people's motivational processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, you could give them some kind of spontaneous thought descriptions or uh, you give them a set of statements that they have to complete and then if they complete them in a particular way, that would indicate that they mm-hmm. are more likely to think about certain things or more guided by certain things that may be motivating them. So there are some methods to do that. But that that research is certainly with respect to virtues and wisdom, if you want, has not been done as much as it should be possibly. And just a for, I mean, I, uh, just a for, I mean, this is taking our discussion in a slightly different direction. But I think one, what I think is a very exciting future direction for thinking about wisdom from a whole trait theory perspective is to try and understand, you know, how people's distributions of wise reasoning differ from each other, right? And what predicts what predicts that difference, right? So, and, and I will say this is coming from my framing as a personality psychologist who's interested in these process theories of personality. I think a very interesting question, right, is examining the dimensions of wise reasoning in a way akin to how uh, we've looked at the big five, right, to look at how people uh, engage in wise reasoning across periods of time and to see, well, if you look at patterns, like people's profiles of wise reasoning, right, how do they differ from each other and what could potentially explain those differences? Right. There's a lot of work to do. Exactly. Igor, I was going to begin to ask about, you know, what we can put out into the world in terms of what people can take away from this in terms of this understanding that we have about, you know, our behavior being influenced by situation and um, what, what can people actually take away and apply to their own lives. But that's kind of something that we do towards the end. Is there anything you wanted to bring up before that? 
No, I think we're good. I think we're almost there. Uh, so okay. why don't we uh, go into this uh, uh, more practical direction? I think uh, we should go back to the title of our episode, and there's the, the Foolish Sage. And the reason mm. why we call it the Foolish Sage is because I think uh, we should be accepting uh, of the fact that even those who we put on the pedestal and claim that they're sages or exemplars in a particular way sometimes under some circumstances may also screw up mm. and that's sometimes very hard to do because if you put people on the pedestal as soon as you find an, a, a case where they are uh, making a mistake or in a certain situation where they don't act according to your ideal of this person that that changes your worldview of that person, it changes your perspective on them, and often you have to look for that for a new sage. So hmm. that's uh, uh, that may be the good thing to do, but I mean, I would say, given the insights about the density distributions, uh, that actually our profiles are informed by the shape of our behaviors across multiple situations rather than by a single hmm. behavior, we really should not be doing that. We should not be just discounting somebody who we observed mm-hmm. in multiple situations and they act wisely, for instance, or were virtuous in a particular way, just because in this one context, they do, did not. I think that's one important implication. I mean, it does not only apply to sages and moral exemplars, but of course, our perception of individuals in daily lives, uh, our friends, our family, and so on. Yeah. So, like a general, like, the other thing, of course, is that we should not be making uh, dispositional attributions right away all the time, Mm -hmm. which uh, certainly in the Western world we often tend to do. And instead of that, consider the situational factors. So I think ego is completely right. And just to add to that, you know, one reason why I found the density distribution approach to personality so appealing is that, among other things, it rings true to our experience of other people and it humanizes people, right? You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it makes you realize that, yeah, people do vary from moment to moment for reasonable reasons and maybe for some time, in some cases, for unreasonable reasons. And that's okay, right? Mm-hmm. So there's something very humanizing about thinking about people in terms of like distributions of behavior, right? And I think ego is right that, you know, one lesson is that you shouldn't make too much of a first impression, right? That if you want to understand someone, you really need to spend some time with them, maybe across different contexts to get a good sense of what their personality or their character is like. And I also think that, you know, we should resist the temptation to define our exemplars in terms of these saint-like figures, right? Mm -hmm. Because as Ego said, right, once you realize that your your ideal is less than perfect, right, it can lead to disappointment. Everyone, like, I'm trying to think of moral exemplars off the top of my head, you know, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, right? If you look at their lives, you know, their their lives are really complicated and they did they intentionally did certain things in their lives that you know you wouldn't do as a person, right? But that doesn't necessarily take away from their achievement in their respective spheres. So I would say that, you know, there are researchers, there are philosophers who try and, you know, make the case that moral beacons, they need to meet this very high standard before we can talk about them as morally praiseworthy. And I think the psychological facts on the ground make me want to resist that type of claim. Yeah, it's also really interesting that uh, if you think about sages, uh, you can have this kind of uh, global sages, remarkable sages, and local uh, uh, wise sa- uh, sages, so like in your immediate environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you just just by yourself think about it as a reader, like right now, the, the local sages would be quite equally distributed in terms of gender. You can often think about your wise grandma or aunt or wise grandpa or something like that. Whereas the global sages in the Western world almost always are male. Mm. And that's of course, is bullshit. Because it's it's like you know like <laughs> should be equally likely to be women as well. So that suggests something about that. It's a really fundamental uh, how the culture shapes our perception of who we consider as wise and how it uh, affords certain powers to certain individuals. Yeah. And uh, that you know that in our uh, over, over centuries we uh, gave men a man way more power than they deserve because. 
turns out, in reality, if you look at this local mm, stages mm, and our environment, mm. they're equally distributed. It's not like, in fact, quite often, I'm more likely to take advice of a grandpa as a person to go for advice <laughs> than a grandpa. So again, they're revealing certain stereotypes. Um, so it's very, very dangerous to just focus on that. Yeah, I, I like this idea um, from both what you're both saying about essentially looking at people as they're not like one spike on this density distribution where, you know, all their behavior will consistently be, you know, a score out of four out of five on extroversion, but more they have this profile. And that seems like a much more sort of realistic uh, mature way of thinking about people. And it would lead to a lot less sort of judgment and disappointment. So that... Uh, I like the sound of that. There's one last thing that I uh, I came up in one of the papers Eagle sent me, which was mm-hmm. about this idea of near occasions for sin. I think is this in D- the Doris paper, Eagle? Maybe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, if so I'm not mistaken. It was, yeah, it's this idea that um, if you believe really strongly in virtue, then you will potentially believe that it's fixed. Then you may well put yourself in contexts that could be problematic because you have so much faith in your own virtue that you you think well i wouldn't behave in an inappropriate way because my virtue is robust but by having a bit more of an understanding of the influence of the situation you might be a bit more humble about that and think hmm okay i think i back myself in terms of my personality and character but you know the situation has quite a big influence so perhaps i need to consider that so and it's it's funny because i remember my mum telling me this as a kid you know and i thought she was you know just kind of sounded like an old wives wives tale but she was saying you need to you might think you're solid on this but if you put yourselves in certain situations, you might be surprised at the behavior that you come out with. So I think that's quite a sort of a um, practical thing to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So it resonates with, uh, there was a study in the Journal of Personality Social Psychology that came out a few years ago, and it was, I think, Will Hoffman was the lead author, where he found that, you know, the explanation for why people, certain people rated themselves as being higher in self-control than other people was that people high in self-control actively selected out of situations where they knew they would be tempted. Um, mm-hmm. Right? So the, the so at least it seemed that people high in self control had enough insight into their behavior across different mm. contexts that mm. they knew which which situations to select out of. Ah, so they, they were right. aware of their own profile kind of thing. Yeah, in a way that it seems like people in this other paper you were talking about did not, right? Mm. So it was, it was more confidence that they could withstand these situations which was not matched by the experience in those situations. All right. Um, So next week, our episode is going to be on wisdom, power and inequality. We have uh, a guest which we're very excited about, Michael Krauss from Yale. He's a specialist in hierarchy and he studies behaviours and emotional states and their relationship to inequality. So that's going to be probably pretty, pretty deep and profound. I look forward to everyone tuning in for that one. Iranda, it remains for for us to say a huge thank you for uh, what has been a much more profound and broad discussion than I than I expected, but it's been thoroughly enlightening. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome, and thank you so much for having me. I had an excellent time. 